The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Thursday, May 26th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the first human genome from a victim of the eruption in ancient Pompeii has been sequenced. Plus, a global mushroom art scavenger hunt is afoot. And Winnie the Pooh is joining the gritty origin story bandwagon with a new horror take on the residents of the Hundred Acre Wood. Here is some cool stuff for your ride home. Mount Vesuvius erupted almost 2,000 years ago in 79 CE, killing thousands of residents in Pompeii and Herculaneum almost instantly as intense heat, gas, ash, and pumice flooded the air. Despite the destruction long leading us to believe DNA analysis of the human and animal victims would be fruitless, we do have quite a bit of other information about one of our world's most epic natural disasters. And part of that is due to the ash covering all of the buildings, keeping them well-preserved through the millennia. You may recall stories I've covered previously about an ancient snack bar and ample lewd graffiti that have been found in Pompeii in recent years. But another reason we have a lot of information is because Pliny the Younger witnessed the eruption from across the Bay of Naples and wrote the only surviving eyewitness account we have of the event, and it's thanks to Pliny that we know some of the exact times corresponding to the eruption. But now, technology has advanced enough that we can glean more from DNA analysis, and scientists have just sequenced the genome of a man who was killed that fateful day. Quoting Science Alert, This manner of death was previously thought to leave DNA from the victims unviable for analysis, since the high temperatures effectively destroy the bone matrix wherein DNA resides. On the other hand, the ash that covered the victims and preserved their fate for nearly two millennia could have acted as a shield against environmental factors that induce further degradation, such as oxygen. Previous attempts to analyze the DNA of ancient Pompeians used polymerase chain reaction techniques, returning short segments of DNA from human and animal victims, and suggesting that at least some genomic information had survived the ravages of the volcano and time. Recent advances in genome sequencing, however, have dramatically increased the amount of information that can be retrieved from fragments of DNA that would previously have been too damaged to be viable. End quote. Two subjects were used, a man of about 35 to 40 and a woman over 50 who died in the same room. Like many victims, they were found inside of homes and in positions that suggest they never tried to escape and may have died close to immediately. In the case of these two individuals, their reasons for not escaping may have been due to health conditions. The man's DNA showed the presence of the bacterium that causes tuberculosis, and studying his vertebrae indicated he may have suffered from spinal tuberculosis. Tuberculosis was unfortunately quite common at the time as increased population density and an urban lifestyle aided the spread of the disease. Now, quoting further, 
From these individuals, the researchers extracted DNA from the petrous bone of the skull, one of the densest bones in the body, and therefore among the most likely to retain viable DNA. Using identical methods, material was extracted and sequenced from both bones. Only the bone of the man, however, yielded sufficient DNA for reasonable analysis. The team compared the sample against genomes from 1,030 ancient and 471 modern Western Eurasian individuals, end quote. And while the results indicate that the genes of the man was mostly consistent with mainland Italy, some of his genes were Sardinian which researchers say also adds up because Romans were moving around a lot at the time, especially trading enslaved people. This is just the genome of one individual, and nothing about it was too surprising, but the researchers emphasize how incredible it was that they were even able to do this. As the co-lead researchers told Vice, the biggest initial surprise on the particular individual is that it worked. As a professor here in Copenhagen usually says, DNA is like ice cream. It lasts longer when it's cold. Being enveloped in a tsunami of 300 degrees Celsius volcanic ash is then, well, suboptimal for DNA preservation. Some attempts have been made on genetic analysis of Pompeian human and animal remains, however, focusing on small fragments of DNA, not on genomes. There are trends and fine-scale details that we can assess now that would be possible using the previous methods. Now, on the purely genetic side, the man, individual A, looks very similar to other imperial Roman age genomes that we have available, but with a twist. Some of its genetic profile, the Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA, are very unusual for both the time and location. Actually, both his lineages were very rare. What we believe it means is that he represents some Iron Age genetic diversity that was lost due to the homogenization of the Italic Peninsula after the Roman Empire. End quote. The team is currently hoping to sequence the genomes of more humans and animals who died from the eruption or died around the same time and in the same region in an effort to learn more about poorly understood populations like Roman Italic and Etruscan people. Want to go mushroom hunting on June 11th? Daniel Attaboy Seifert's annual Art and Seek event, Game of Shrooms, is back for one day only. Game of Shrooms was started in 2019, and the basic idea is that people create mushroom-themed art, hide it out in public somewhere, and then other people find it. It's a super wholesome activity that brings people together within communities and all around the world. Already on the official Game of Shrooms Forager map, there are pins all over the world where artists will be dropping their mushroom art. If you are a forager, you can go to the map to see what pins are in your area and then click on the social media of the artists in your area to see what hints they leave about where to find their art. And the art really runs the gamut. There's a lot of painting and prints, but also various types of sculptures, crocheted mushrooms, mushroom derby cars, nightlights, plushies, really extravagant and avant-garde sculptures, and at least one Campbell's cream of mushroom can with an Andy Warhol wig. Even just scrolling through the Game of Shrooms tag on Instagram is fun enough, you know, seeing what artistic works people have come up with for this year or years past, but getting to go foraging to take home your own original work on the 11th is the real prize. If you do end up foraging, the main guidelines are that you only take one work of art, even if you spot more, and that you tag or message the artist when you find it so they know it's been found. If you want to contribute as an artist, first 
Come up with what you want to make. It should be mushroom-themed, but as Attaboy clarifies on the website, quote, art critics have not been invited to weigh in on the subject, end quote. And then you'll submit it to the Game of Shrooms website map and post it on social media with some clues about where to find it, both to hype up your art and help the foragers find it. A little note with your name or social media handle so foragers can let you know they found it, or non-foragers who stumble on it on accident can figure out what's going on, is great, but resist the urge for excessive self-promo or linking to your store. As the website says, quote, That's not what this is about. Take a day off from that. Pause the hustle and create a -a one-of-a-kind piece of art and give it away. I promise you we'll have more fun that way. End quote. The site also shares some pointers on the best kind of art to weather the elements. If you go for a 2D print, for example, consider propping it up on a popsicle stick or something. And avoid stickers. The point is for one person to get to physically take home a single original piece of art, not for a game of shrooms to turn into a street tagging party. And if it seems like no one ever found your art, it is your responsibility to go back and retrieve it so the big event doesn't become a big day of littering. And if you're in California, the big day will be culminating in a meetup and evening picnic at the Fairyland Park in Oakland, featuring the performers Ghetto Geppetto, Kitten on the Keys, and Doggy Diner Heads. It all sounds very weird and very artsy, but also incredibly wholesome, and no matter where you live, like a really nice way to take a break from what has been a super tough week and remind yourself about some of the joy and beauty in the world. So June 11th, Game of Shrooms, mark your calendars, and have fun. Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash. And see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at FanDuel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania. Must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG. Winnie the Pooh is going dark in an upcoming horror film called Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey. Stills were released this week showing live-action anthropomorphic versions of Pooh and Piglet looking downright sadistic as they approach a woman lounging in a hot tub. As Dread Central pretty much summed it up, quote, We have questions, end quote. The indie horror flick is billed as a grisly retelling of Winnie the Pooh, in which Christopher Robin abandoned Pooh and Piglet when he went off to college, leaving them without food and making their lives difficult. But unlike, say, Woody and Buzz, who found new toy and human friends when Andy left for college, Pooh and Piglet apparently react to this trauma by becoming hardened serial killers. The movie was written and directed by Reese Waterfield, whose other credits include the upcoming films Demonic Christmas Tree, Fire Nato, and Sky Monster. Meanwhile, the production company behind the film Jagged Edge is known for such flicks as The Curse of Humpty Dumpty, The Curse of Jack Frost, and Easter Killing. So I think that kind of tells you what you're getting into here. 
Variety notes that the film was shot in just 10 days, not far from Ashdown Forest, which served as the original inspiration for author A.A. Milne's Hundred Acre Wood. And now that the film is gaining so much publicity, the team says they're expediting the edit to get it out as soon as possible, although no release date has been announced just yet. It's definitely on an indie budget, so if you manage to see it at some point, keep that in mind. The characters Pooh and Piglet really just look like bank robbers wearing rubber masks in a lot of these stills. But Waterfield put a lot of thought into the balance of horror and comedy for such a weird concept. He says there are funny bits, like shots of Winnie the Pooh driving, where you can see his, quote, little ears behind the wheel, end quote. But at the same time, he's driving a car over a woman he just chloroformed, so, you know, it's pretty scary and disturbing as well. Waterfield told Variety, quote, When you try and do a film like this and it's a really wacky concept, it's very easy to go down a route where nothing is scary and it's just really ridiculous and really, like, stupid. And we wanted to go between the two. End quote. Here is the big question a lot of people are asking, though. How are they even getting away with this? Won't Disney be knocking on their door any minute now with a cease and desist order? Well... I'm sure the mouse will try, but they don't have too much of an argument, and Waterfield did his research. So you may remember from episodes around the new year that A.A. Milne's original Winnie the Pooh story from 1926 entered the public domain on January 1st of this year. So great, cool, that explains why we now have a horror version of Pooh. It's an inevitable coronation process for all works entering the public domain. But... A.A. Milne is not technically the only author, or more importantly, copyright holder, of Winnie the Pooh stories. Disney also holds copyright for their version of the character and other characters added for the screen adaptations. As Christine Zhao explained it for IP Watchdog earlier this year, quote, Copyright protection in the United States lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years after the author's death. Since copyright protection extends beyond the life of the author, the author's estate obtains the exclusive rights when the author dies and can subsequently enforce these rights against those who use the work without permission. The buzzwords public domain can create a false sense of security. Often, characters carry through many stories written by an author, and when the first story enters the public domain, it does not mean that all uses of that character are without copyright protection. We see this play out where an author's descendants and their estates often enforce the author's rights, existing or not, by demanding a licensing fee and taking steps to block distribution of the infringing work if a licensing fee is not paid." End quote. You may remember a while back when I discussed how this is often applied to the Sherlock Holmes stories. Netflix's Enola Holmes film starring Millie Bobby Brown, itself an adaptation of the young adult book series by Nancy Springer, faced a lawsuit from the Conan Doyle estate, as many other interpretations have done over the years. And that is because while some Sherlock Holmes stories entered public domain in the early 2000s, not all of them did. And some of the later stories that have still yet to enter public domain are the ones in which Sherlock Holmes as a character became markedly more empathetic and compassionate as a human. So basically any time there's an adaptation that shows Sherlock Holmes having too many emotions, the Conan Doyle estate comes knocking, asking for licensing fees to be paid. I'll put a link in the show notes to the old episode I did on this for more information. Now, it's both more objective and a little more complex with Winnie the Pooh. In this case, the differences aren't as opaque as determining whether or not the main character is showing an appropriate amount of human emotion, 
But it's also more complicated because it's the difference between two different authors, A.A. Milne and the Walt Disney Company. Here's a good example. Ryan Reynolds made a commercial for Mint Mobile using Winnie the Pooh straight away on January 2nd of this year, and he has managed to avoid the wrath of the mouse. But he got away with it for the same reasons that Waterfield hopes to in Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey, by avoiding all the parts of Winnie the Pooh that Disney does still own. In the original books, only the first of which is in the public domain so far, Winnie the Pooh does not wear his now-famous little red shirt. That was a Disney addition, and one that they acquired the rights to in 1961, therefore they still own the rights to that depiction. Reynolds and his team was careful to use storybook visuals more reminiscent of Milne's original books, not anything like Disney's animated style and with no red shirt in sight. Tigger was also not introduced as a character until the second A.A. Milne book, which is still under copyright, so we won't see any kind of Joker version of Tigger in Blood and Honey, thank God. Although, that book will enter public domain next year, so if there is a sequel in our future, Tigger may be joining the gang. And Gizmodo does point out, quote, That said, there will be Easter eggs, like a tombstone for Eeyore, a thing I never thought I would have to type in my life, end quote. Now, one place Disney could go if they really wanted to be pedantic and were grasping at some reason to shut down this horror film version of what most people think of as a Disney property is that in the original A.A. Milne stories, Winnie the Pooh was written with hyphens in between the words. Disney dropped them. Blood and Honey also drops the hyphens. Now, I doubt they'd actually have any legs to stand on there since they don't, like, own the rights to the non-hyphenated words as far as I know, but I thought it was worth pointing out. And as a fan of horror comedy and indie filmmaking, I might just have to check this out myself, but for most people, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey probably won't be more than an amusing distraction to chuckle at online this week. As Gizmodo put it, quote, It's clearly got an indie horror box it's sticking to, which could potentially make for a fascinating watch if you're into that sort of thing. The appeal of Blood and Honey will depend entirely on if you are willing to meet the movie halfway on its premise, and aren't immediately turned off by the idea of children's characters being turned into murderers or having some dark, edgy backstory. The internet was filled with that sort of thing just a decade or so ago, and this feels like it's very much pulling from that same cloth. Still, this may be all in the execution, pun intended, so perhaps the finished product will be worth seeing on a Friday night in the near future. End quote. Well, all right, that is going to be about it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.